Yeah, amen. Do I have uh, slides this week? Yeah, okay. There we go. Would you stand with me? And let's, uh, let's read a passage from John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it was written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Sorry about that, I hit it twice, so yeah. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to not be like those who, who shouted Hosanna to the son of David, who saw the signs, who heard the teaching, and yet still did not get it. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to get it today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How many of you know uh, what next Sunday is? <clears throat> Easter, Resurrection Day, yes. Uh, 
And how many of you know that there will probably be people here that we don't see often? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I would also encourage any of you who, uh, if it'll work out in your schedule, if you can, I would encourage you to come to the early service uh, so, that, uh, so that we might have a little bit more room in this service because a lot more people think they go to this church than actually do. Uh, yes. The most important week in the history of mankind happened uh, between March the 29th, 33 AD and March the, April the 4th, 33 AD by our Gregorian calendar. Now, they obviously weren't using that kind of calendar in those days, so nobody knew that it was, uh, that it was March the, uh, the 29th or, or that it was April the, the 4th. And, you know, you may be going, wait a minute, this isn't March the 29th. This isn't, you know, we're, we're not at that point in time. Uh, the dating of, uh, of Easter and Holy Week is very complicated. Uh, and um, let me just put it this way. Back in 325 A.D., Nobody here but <clears throat> Ray Tabor remembers that. <laughs> Back in 325 A.D., he loves it when I do that, by the way. Yeah. The, the, the Council of Nicaea met, and they decided wh- how to establish Easter and when it was going to be. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, the first, it's, following, it's the first full moon following the, uh, the Passover each year. Only it's not a lunar full moon. Well, what other kind of full moon could there be? An ecclesiastical full moon. Do I know what that is? No. Do you know what that is? Probably not. The way I find out when Easter is, is I Google it. And I, and I say, when is Easter this year? And it, and it tells me. Um, the, uh, the Eastern church, to make things more complicated, doesn't celebrate it on the same day as the Western church because they use the Julian calendar instead of the Gregorian calendar. And the Julian calendar has lost 13 days in the last, well, since 325 AD. I didn't do the math before I, before I got ready to say that, uh, in a long time. So, so theirs, uh, can never happen in March. It, it comes a little later. Here's the thing. It's kind of like Christmas. It, it, the important thing is not that this was actually the day that it happened. Now we know the day of the week that it happened. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week is when Jesus rose from the dead. But it's not that this is the actual date on the calendar, but it, that, it's, that it's something that we focus on and concentrate on in our hearts. And this was the most important week in the history of the world, and it was a literal historical thing that happened. And to the natural eye, the start of the week looked like a total triumph. And of course, it was a false positive, as we all know. But at the same time, I wouldn't be too hard on those people. At least, at least they got their praise on for one day. At least they got their palm branches out, and they threw their coats down, and they, and they shouted, which was, which was a great thing. They, it, it just didn't last through to the end of the week. I'm sure it did for some of them, but for the, for the crowd itself, it didn't. And of course the week looked like it ended in complete disaster and defeat, but in fact it was necessary to set up April the 5th, 33 AD, which was the beginning of a completely new era of humankind. So today I want to focus on the week a little bit and talk about it, maybe even a little more than just the, the entry into Jerusalem. 
and I'd like to talk about the, the Passover lamb a little bit. If you were here in January, you remember that when John the Baptist came, making straight the way for the Lord and proclaiming who Jesus was, he called him the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, which was, a, which was an interesting title because uh, that, that particular title isn't really used anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, it was, it was uh, implicit that Messiah would be the Lamb of God, but it wasn't explicitly said until John the Baptist came along. And so Jesus was, was the Passover Lamb of God. And the Passover lamb, most of you are familiar with this, but it was, uh, it was started when the, the night that the Israelites left Egypt and Moses had had them take a lamb and slaughter it and put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of, of their houses. So that when the death angel came through the land and brought death to the firstborn, it would pass over all of the houses where it saw the blood. Regardless young or old, good or bad, rich or poor, it didn't matter. As long as the blood was there, the Passover took place and death did not touch that home. Very much like salvation. Very much exactly like the blood of the lamb that's applied to our lives. And so Jesus was in fact this lamb and and, and, and the Passover lamb what a lot of people are not aware of, and, but Moses commanded them the 14th of the day, uh, 14th of the month was when they slaughtered the lamb, but they brought the lamb in on the 10th of the month. And so they had four days where they examined the lamb before they slaughtered it. So Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem. He made it on a, on a Sunday. He didn't actually do anything that day. He just looked at the temple and left. It was the next day when he came back. And, and cleanse the temple, and, and the week really got started. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four days of examination to see, is this one without defect? Is this one flawless? Is this one perfect? And so they were to examine the lamb, and during the, this week, Jesus was tested. Various ones tried to trip him up, and most of you are aware of, of the ones that came along. The first ones were the, were the Pharisees who came along, and they asked him, uh, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Trick question. Because if he says, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we need to pay taxes to Caesar, then they can go to the people and go, this man's not a patriot. This man is telling us to pay taxes to this government that we hate. And by the time they got through spinning it, they'd probably have him raising the taxes as well uh, on, on the people. And, and so they, they could use that as political, political uh, ammunition against him. If, on the other hand, he said, no, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar. We're, we're God's people. Then they could go to the Romans and they could say, this man is teaching people to, to, to be in rebellion and not pay their taxes. And so they had political ammunition that they could use against him. You know what Jesus did, of course. He said, bring me a coin. Uh, whose picture is this? Well, it's, it's Caesar's picture. I mean, look at it. Yeah, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And some people still have trouble keeping those two separate today. But they are. So the Pharisees 
fail to trip him up. And the Sadducees come along. And they, the Sadducees were guys who didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in any of that stuff. And uh, apparently this is, one of their, this is one of their favorite trick questions that they had to bring to people who did believe in the resurrection. They said, there was this woman. And she was married to this, to this guy. And he died, and they didn't have any children. Now, according to the law of Moses, his brother was to, was to take her as a wife and raise up children so that the brother's name would, would carry on. And so his brother did that, and they didn't have any children, and he died. But fortunately, there was another brother, and so he married her. But they didn't have any children, and he died. In fact, there were seven brothers. And I would think that by the time he got to the fourth brother, I would have been pretty leery about this woman. <laughs> and kind of going, her guys don't seem to last very long. But no, all seven of them married her. And all seven of them died without leaving any children. Of course, this is theoretical. There are no women like this. And uh, if that hit too close to home, I'm sorry. I, I didn't. I didn't. And uh, so whose wife will she be in heaven, huh? In this, in this resurrection that you're talking about. Jesus said, you guys, you, you guys, you're in error because you don't know the scripture and you don't, you don't know the power of God. Because you see, it's like this. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Some people today still don't have that figured out. So just let me say, if anybody comes along teaching you that there's going to be these marriages in, in heaven, celestial marriages or whatever, uh -uh, they're disagreeing with Jesus. And, you know, I, I, I come down on Jesus' side. And then Jesus took a little bunny trail and he said, but about the resurrection, let's talk about that for just a second, because I know the reason why you guys don't believe in this is because you only take the writings of Moses to be authoritative and you don't think Moses said anything about the resurrection, but you're not reading close enough because Moses at the burning bush said that God revealed himself to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob was the youngest one of that group, by the way, and he died 400 years before God said this to Moses. So, so, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. All are alive to him. You are greatly mistaken. So the Pharisees had failed, the Sadducees failed, the uh, an expert in the law came along and asked him about the greatest commandment. Surely if you're going to be Messiah, you've got to know what the greatest commandment is, or even if you're going to be a great teacher. And he said, I know that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And they do. They absolutely do. And we, we, we drift so far from that. Back uh, when I was a teenager, that was around 385 A.D. Uh, it's back in the 60s uh, of the 20th century. Back, back when I was a teenager, it was, the, it was the decade of love. 
And while we had no clue what love was, uh, we got, at least the word was right. And, and the church kind of took, took a stance of, you know, those people don't even take baths. What are you talking about love? You know, no, no, you've got to prove your love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yes. But he did not mean that you will prove your love for me by keeping my commandments. What he meant is the only way you can possibly keep my commandments is to fall in love with me. You ever, you ever fallen in love with somebody? None of you? What? What? Yeah, you fall in love with somebody and you can do anything. You can... You, when, when Margaret came into my life, she lived 25 miles away. And so it was a 50-mile round trip to go to her house. And I had to get up in the mornings at, I don't know, some ridiculous... Is, does 6 o'clock even exist? Uh, it, it, it does. I know it does. A lot of you are halfway through your day at 6 o'clock. But, you know, I had to get up in the mornings at 6 o'clock. And, you know, and, and so I felt like I had to leave Margaret's house by midnight so I could get home and be a, maybe in, asleep by 1. You know, you're young. You can go on. You don't need to sleep or anything like that. And uh, you know what? There was never a day that I went, boy, I don't want to make that drive today. There was never a day that I went, this is a long way. Every single day I woke up going, you know where I'm going this evening? I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to drive 25 miles to Margaret's house and we're going to eat cookies. <laughs> and then I'm going to turn around at midnight and I'm going to drive back and I'm just going to, and, and I may float back. I don't know. When you're in love, you can do anything. Paul says love fulfills all of the law's commands. Really? Love is like oxygen. Love is a mini-splendored thing. All you need is love. And then Jesus silenced his questioners by asking them a question. I got a question for you. Who is, whose son is the Messiah? <laughs> well, that's easy. He's the son of David. Yeah, that's right. He is the son of David, isn't he? Well, you know, David says about him over in Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus didn't say 110, verse 1. But he said over in the Psalm, Jesus, David calls him Lord. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. Now, how can he be his son and his Lord? Okay, dads, you got any answers for that? You know? Yeah. Uh, and they didn't know because the answer was standing right in front of them. And in order for them to say, well, maybe he could like be someone like you and still be the Messiah, they wouldn't go there. John doesn't record these uh, these encounters but he draws the same conclusion over in verse 38 of this chapter he has Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah and saying Lord who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed 
See, Isaiah chapter 53, those 12 verses in, in, in Isaiah chapter 53 contain more information about Messiah than any of the 12 verses in all of the Bible, Old or New Testament. And the first thing it says is, Lord, who's going to believe this? When he comes, people won't believe. They have eyes, but they don't see, and ears, but they don't hear. Hearts, but they don't understand. And we haven't changed a whole lot. Anyway, he passed the test. And as the week progresses, John focuses primarily on Thursday evening. When Jesus ate with his disciples for the last time before the cross. And uh, I noticed something about this picture. And I don't want to take a lot of time. It's, it's just, this is totally a bunny trail. But uh, if you'll notice, uh, one of the things I really like about this picture is there's Jesus and there's 11 disciples. And there's a shadow in the background of somebody going out the door. It's kind of cool. I just, I just thought it was cool. Okay. And if you don't know who that is, then you can read John chapter 13. But he, he focuses a lot on, on that Thursday night and Jesus washing the disciples' feet and Jesus revealing that, that one of them would betray him and, and uh, tell, telling Peter that he would deny him and, and then revealing many things to the disciples and talking to them about the Holy Spirit and and y'all haven't heard a thing I've said. You've been counting those guys, haven't you? <laughs> I, I, take my word for it, okay? I mean, you know, you, don't take my word for the Bible stuff. Go, but I mean, a picture, come on. <laughs> By making this entry, Jesus seemed to finally be doing what his followers wanted him to do all along. Let's make a big splash. Let's have a campaign. Let's, let's, get this, let's get this show on the road. Let's crank this thing up a little bit. It's not that simple. How often do you see God in Scripture doing exactly what the crowd wants? Uh, if you said never then you're probably right. Uh, at least the times that he did, he said, uh, go ahead and give them what they want. And then they found out where that goes. He entered Jerusalem, but instead of turning toward the Romans to drive them out, he turned toward the temple and sorted out the, the, the religious establishment, the religious order that was there. He was not at all interested in the world's political order. Not at all. Don't want to be like Jesus? And why should he be? The world is passing away. It's passing away. When he stood before Pilate, Pilate said, don't you understand that I have the power to set you free or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any power over me at all if it weren't given to you from above. I know who really, really has the power. See, it was everybody else who was, who was interested in the political side of things. So it's easy to speculate, and, and you know, if you've read some of the more modern ideas about uh, Passion Week and, and what happened, it's easy to speculate as to why Judas did what he did. I mean, and oftentimes the speculation runs toward, well, Jesus, you know, was really a follower and really wanted to see Jesus uh, move ahead and, and, and set up his kingdom. And, uh, and, you know, he just didn't seem to be getting anywhere with it. And so he was forcing his hand. Well, maybe John's 
felt like he was just greedy for money because uh, he was a thief. So, you know, maybe he liked one in 30 pieces of silver, but maybe he was forcing Jesus' hand. I don't know. The Pharisees clearly had a political viewpoint. So when they saw the, uh, when they saw the crowd welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, they say, this is getting us nowhere. See how the whole world has gone after him. No, no mention of, you know, I wonder if he might be the Messiah. No mention of, well, I wonder what the truth actually is. Uh, it was all about, hey, he's more popular than we are. This is, this is getting out of hand. This guy's a force to be reckoned with. He's got the people behind him. Maybe he's got more than the people behind him. And ultimately, the chief priest used politics to force Pilate to crucify Jesus. Pilate wanted to set him free, and they said, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who sets himself up as a king opposes Caesar. Tighten the screws. We'll get that bill passed. There's another lesson we're slow to learn. John tells us about an incident, though, that, uh, that the others don't really bring along at all, and, and that's these, these Greeks. John talks about uh, the Greeks coming to want to see Jesus, and in some ways, this incident was probably more a test of the Lamb of God than his dialogue with the Jewish leaders. These Greeks were apparently Gentile believers. You know, uh, with the exception of certain groups around certain people groups around Canaan at the time of, of the invasion of Canaan, God never excluded any of the Gentiles from coming in. Never did. Moses, uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was one of, he was a major counselor of his, and, and, uh, and they begged him to go with them as they, as they traveled, and, and, he, and he did. And so, needless to say, his daughter wasn't, wasn't born of Jacob either, and he, she was Moses' wife. Moses had another wife. He had an Ethiopian wife. She obviously hadn't been born of the line of Jacob. There's, there's Rahab, who actually belonged to uh, actually belonged to one of those tribes that was supposed to be excluded. There, there was there was Ruth, who was a Moabitess, and was one of those tribes that was supposed to be excluded. There, but so God always made exceptions and always had the door open. It was, uh, you know, it was, it, was the, it was the religious hard noses who tried to build walls and keep people out and still do. <laughs> what did they want when they came? What was it that they wanted? Well, they, the Bible didn't tell us what they wanted. But based on Jesus' reply, it's not out of the question to speculate that they were coming to, uh, to make him an offer that hopefully he couldn't refuse. You know, let's start the world tour. I mean, we have seen what you've done here. And if you, and if you can cause this kind of excitement in Jerusalem, we think, we think you'd play well in Athens. We think you'd play well in Rome. We, we, in fact, we think you could probably, you'd be bigger than the Beatles. You, you, could, you can take over the, the whole world. And uh, it's the same offer that Satan made to him at the beginning of his ministry. Because Satan's only got so many bullets in his gun, so many temptation bullets, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And even friends and allies can, 
unwittingly be recruited to, to tempt. I mean, these guys wanted to see Jesus, not because they didn't, not because they wanted to disprove him being Messiah. They wanted him to be Messiah. I've got a friend up in uh, Bowling Green who's pastor. And uh, he's been a pastor there for a couple of years. And he um, had a very successful ministry in another town in West Tennessee. And then he had a number of years where he was out of the ministry because he, he had a big failure there. I mean, he, he, he ended up falling into a relationship with, a, with another woman, leaving his wife and a bunch of stuff. And um, it, it was bad. And... Uh, but he's back in the ministry now, and you kind of go, oh, I don't know about those kind of guys. Well, he's a, he's a very different man now from what he was then. And uh, anyway, he, uh, he was talk- I, was at, I was at lunch with him and some other pastors this last week. He was talking about a mentor that he had. And the mentor that he has told him when he went into the ministry there, when he went back into the ministry in Clarksville, he said, I want you to go, I want you to take... I don't remember how much time it was. It might have been a week. It might have been a month. But I want you to take this amount of time and I want you to write down the three ways that the enemy's going to try and destroy your ministry, try to bring you down. And uh, so he went and, uh, you know, ultimately he finally came up with three things. He came back with them. One of them was discouragement. Uh, one of them was, uh, was fear. And one of them was impatience. And the guy... Looked at, uh, looked at his list and he said, discouragement and fear. Yeah, that, that, that's always an issue. That's always something that the enemy brings against everybody to bring their lives down. And when he got to the impatient thing, he began to cry, began to weep. He said, that's it. He said, you've nailed that. He said, the devil's not going to come at you the same way. You, you've, had, you've had so much pain over the moral failure and the money and, and all of that stuff and the power. He, he can't get you with that again because you know the pain that that has brought. But you also had so much success that you're going to be impatient for it to happen again. And that's the way he's going to come at you. He's going to come at you to try and get you to, to, to push this thing and make things happen before they can happen. See, sometimes things come along and they, they look good. They look like they're in our favor. They look like it's something that's wanting to advance and move forward. But it's not God. And so even friends sometimes can come along and bring some ideas that, that look good. What Jesus said was this. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's a universal law, and it doesn't just apply to vegetables. It doesn't just apply to plants. When we refuse to think in terms, when we refuse to live our lives in terms of what's coming after us, then we're we're already undercutting, thwarting much of our very reason for being here in the first place. Because we're laying foundations for things. We're, we're, We're creating the possibility for things to happen. Jesus was going to die. And as a result, he was going to bring many children into glory, into the kingdom of God. 
fact, Hebrews says that he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Everyone is a big number. It's a whole lot bigger than one. Goes on to say, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And when it says he will see his offspring, it doesn't mean that he married Mary Magdalene and they had a kid. It means us. It, it means us and all those like us who, who, who have accepted him. As their, as their Savior. Jesus goes on to say, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We have such an unhealthy perspective on death in this culture. Very unhealthy perspective on it. I'm not saying there's no sorrow connected with death. I'm not, I'm not saying that, there, that there's no grief, but sometimes you think that we aren't Christians at all when it comes to the grave. When, when it comes to, to that doorway, to that, to that pathway. I mean, if we, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, he will live and not die. And anyone who believes in me and lives will never die. And then he said, do you believe this? Well, do you? I mean, seriously. When, when my dad, when my dad uh, went, went on to be with the Lord, and I know this is different. Um, you know, I mean, he'd been in the ministry for a long time and was faithful to the Lord. But, you know, those last few, those last few weeks, man, he was more there than he was here. And, and I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, he, he you know, his... his Dementia. Well, maybe, maybe it was dementia, but he saw things I didn't see. You know, and some of them might not have been there, but some of them were definitely there. No question about it. That, that'd been the goal. That was, that, was, that, was, that was where he was going for. You know, and, and when you got, I'm not talking about you shouldn't have any moments where you go, you know, I really miss them. You know, I really would like, it'd be great to be able to talk to them again. You know, I'd really be able to, uh, you know, just, just to feel their touch again. That, that, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about life-controlling situations where people years and even decades later just can't even get past it. It's only death. There, there are, there are uh, uh, monasteries where they always keep a fresh grave open. And it's not, it's not, so that, it's not because somebody just died. It's because somebody's going to. And every single day, they need to be reminded of that. In fact, look at the person next to you and say, hey, you're going to die, I'm going to die. Next question. Okay, it doesn't take that long to say that. Because the important thing is the next question. The extent to which we hold tight to this life is in inverse proportion to our grip on eternity. Just that simple. In fact, Revelation 12, 11, let me, let me just read this real quickly. I got to get going here. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. 
They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We normally stop at the semicolon. They triumphed over, over the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Oh, and they did not love their lives. And, well, there's not an and there, but that's what the semicolon means. It, it belongs together. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Jesus said this, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? I mean, really? This is a pretty good offer. If I, if I'm, if I, if I take this offer, I, I might skip Gethsemane. I might skip Calvary. So what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus was troubled. How many of you know that dogs aren't brave? And I'm not just talking about chihuahuas. No, they're not brave. They're just ignorant. And so they're fearless. They're fearless. I have a, I have a, I have a 16-pound Pomeranian. He might, he might be 17. He puts on a little weight in the wintertime. I got a 17-pound Pomeranian. And I mean, he would take on the biggest, baddest pit, pit bull. Yeah, pit bull. American Staffordshire Terrier in the whole wide world. He would lose very quickly, but he would take that on because he, he's just, he's dumb that way. And anyone who says they're never troubled is dumb that way. Actually, they're probably a liar. They're not, they're not faithing it, they're faking it. Jesus was troubled. And you would be too. I mean, if you knew, hey, guess what? This Thursday I'm getting arrested. And Friday they're going to torture me to death. You might be a little troubled about that. And that's okay. As long as being troubled doesn't incapacitate you. Troubled and, and fearful are not the same thing. They're two very different concepts. This hour was the reason why he came. I mean, yeah, he taught. He did some miracles. He, he raised up some disciples. But, but it was all based on the fact that he, that he came to die. That he was going to the cross. How many come to the crux of the, their reason for being and then shrink back. Come right up to, this is it. Uh, don't think I want to go there. Hebrews says, my righteous one will live by faith. And, or they could have just put a semicolon there. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Living by, living by faith is not shrinking back. I mean, we tend to think that living by faith is, you know, making miracles and stuff happen all the time. And, you know, that, that's okay, and, and, and they can happen. But living by faith is about not shrinking back. Day after day, 
week after week, month after month, year after year, not shrinking back. Going forward. Standing your ground. Waiting on God. We can only face the hard things by looking ahead. And so therefore, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, set down at the right hand of the Father. The joy set before him. See, yeah, he, he knew those things were going to happen on, on Thursday and Friday. and oh, He was thinking about Sunday. Yeah, you know, you ever get in a week and start thinking about Sunday, even though, it, even though it's just, just begun? Yeah. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I mean, you know, he knew he was coming up out of that tomb because the scripture had said, you will not abandon your holy one to the grave. You will not let him see decay. He, he knew what was coming. And so he had the, uh, the ability to persevere for the joy that was set before him. And that's what, we, that's what we have to look at. And so he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, <coughs> I will draw them into myself. And he, and, he, and he prefaced that by saying, now is the prince of this world driven out. It's going to look like he won a victory, but it's, it's his end. It's the absolute beginning because I'm going to be lifted up from the earth, indicating the kind of death by which he was going to die. But I'm going to change everything and I'm going to draw all people unto me. And so indeed Christ was lifted up and indeed he does draw all unto him. Saying come unto me. Everyone who is weary, heavy laden. And if that doesn't describe you, you just hadn't lived long enough yet. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm humble. I'm lowly. You'll find rest for your soul. This week, we commemorate the most important week in the history of mankind because it's set up Sunday that we're looking to. In the beginning of a whole new era for us all. Would you stand with me? So don't treat this week like it's just any other. Read your Bible. Talk to God throughout the day. Sing. It's special. Those who are going to pray with people come forward at this time. And while... Everything has changed with the resurrection of Christ. We're, in, we're still in a transitional period. Feels like a long one because our lives are so short. You're going to die. So am I. Next question. But it's actually a very brief transitional period. But it's still life in a fallen world. And so if you need something. If you need healing. If you need provision. If you need wisdom. If you need redemption. If you don't know Christ, man, I remember in the spring of 1975 when I really gave my life to the Lord. And I realized after I did that we were like two weeks from Easter. 
Yeah, come on. You come ahead and come. We were like two weeks from Easter, and I was going, wow, Easter. I'm a Christian. This is my holiday. Yes. If you don't know Christ, this would be a perfect time. Give your life to him. We'd love to. We'd love to introduce you to him. He really will give you rest. If you don't need to come, let's worship for a few moments. Wait on those who do. Wait on our Lord. Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who sent his son into the world to redeem us to bring life to us may that redemption be yours may you glory 
in him. May you glory in who he is through you. May you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love others as yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.